Philadelphia is the name of this next church. One thing I want to mention before we dive into Philadelphia is also these church periods in church history, they, they last, the first two are over and done with. But the last four, or the first three are over and done with, but the last four all last all the way until Jesus comes back. And we know that because in each of the letters, there's the phrase, until I come. In each of the last four letters, until I come, until I come, until I come. And so we see that there's still a Catholic church around, and Jesus had it. We addressed that. There's still Protestant churches around. We addressed that. There's still the Church of Philadelphia, which we're going to see today, is the evangelical church that started in the 1750s, about that time. You can't really nail down a time, but about the 1750s, and it goes up until our present day today. And I do hope and believe that we are part of this church although I think we're affected and kind of connected with all of, all of them, I hope that, as in general, we are part of this church. We'll see next week another church that is very prevalent today, which is a seeker-sensitive, lukewarm church. We'll find out about that next week. Today, we're talking about Philadelphia. When I say Philadelphia, you might think of the Liberty Bell. Or you might think of Rocky right? All right. You might think of uh, cheesecake, cheesesteak sandwiches, right, Chris? <laughs> Taste of Philly, represent, all right. You might think of cream cheese. Or if you're really into football, you might even think of the butt fumble. Now, he was, for the, he was playing for the Jets right there, but he just came from Philly, and now he's our quarterback, so... That was just moans? Come on. Come on, Bronco fans. You're not too excited for that one? All right. Well, that's what I think of when I think of Philadelphia, usually. But what we're going to learn is that Philadelphia speaks to us about the evangelical church of the 1700s through, the to, through um, today. And, uh, and uh, let's go ahead and read two verses from the book of John. I'm going to read to you first before... Um, before we get started, in John chapter 13, verse 34, let me just find it so I can read it to you guys. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that, um, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love. For one another. And then John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. A couple pages to your left. Chapter 4, verse 7. First John, not John. You guys tricked me up. First John, chapter 4, verse 7. I was like, the woman at the well, that is not what we're talking about. Okay, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who is born of God knows God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The church we're going to learn at today, the church we're going to learn about today, had this love. They had the character of God all up in their life. It permeated their life, the very character of God. God is love, and they spent so much time with God that they became incredibly loving in all their ways. So they, they basically hung out with God so much that they took his character upon themselves. Bad friends corrupt good character. Your mom always told you that, right? Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. And the thing they most said is, if they jump off the bridge, are you going to jump off a bridge too? Right? What that means is that their character matters in your life. Like the people you hang out with, they can greatly affect you. Well, the same thing works with Jesus. Jesus, when he hangs out with bad people, he changes them into good people, which is great because I'm a bad person. But I love the fact that Jesus is willing to hang out with me through his word. He says, anytime I want to dive into relationship with him, I just come to him 
through his word, and I can spend time. Well, this church doesn't have, we'll see, as many problems as all the other churches that we've looked at. They hear the word of God, and they do it. And so God uses this church greatly. We're going to see in history, they're very powerful. God uses them so wonderfully to reach the world and to reach other believers with love. So our main lesson today is this. I'm going to give you the lesson before we even start. So if you want to go, you can go if you got a brunch. I'm just kidding. Not allowed to leave. We got people watching the door. <laughs> our main lesson is this. God uses those who have humility and faith to change the world through love. God uses those who have humility and faith to change the world through love. BK has coined the term F and H, which is faith and humility, which we talk about all the time. Every week, we will bring up those two terms because that is what we can bring to God. That's it. You can't bring him performance. You can't bring him anything else. We'll get into this later. And faith and humility, when you add them together in a person's life, what does it look like? It looks like surrender or the white flag. That's where we get our name. So, Faith and humility together, what does that look like? Surrender. Well, let's go ahead and read now our text here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy and he who is true. He who has the key of David, who, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship at your feet and know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out from heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Someone who comes to Christianity just fresh and, and reads this, they're like, what is going on? This guy was on drugs. This is very crazy. He's talking about things and saying sentences that I literally don't understand anything that he's talking about. Well, what we do when we look at the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, is we have to understand that it relates, it connects everything from the rest of the Bible in together. And so don't be intimidated. We're going we're gonna to break this part of the scripture down. We're going to explain it. And by the end of today, you're going to understand this no problem. You're going to have it. You're going to be able to go tell your friends today at lunch, tonight at dinner, this week at work. You're going to be able to explain, hey, Church of Philadelphia, man, they had it going on. So let's do that. He says, starts out at the beginning, he says, and to the church in Philadelphia, write. So Philadelphia, what does anyone know what Philadelphia means? Wow, you guys are, would be great at a trivia night. <laughs> does anyone know why Philadelphia is called that? Well, this city in Philadelphia was named uh, after, after the first king that built it, King Eumenes, Eumenes II, he was the king of a place called Pergamum in 197 through 160 BC. You're like, I don't care about history. Hold on. It's, it's important. You'll like this. He named, the city, uh, he, he named the city after the love he had for his brother. He had this brother. They were super tight. And he actually became his successor, and his name was Attalus II. And uh, this loyalty that they had together uh, earned the nickname Philadelphos, uh, which literally means they were called, they, their nickname was those uh, who love their brothers. They, they were brothers who loved each other. That was their nickname. So Eumenes uh, built roads and buildings, and he named them all after his brother. 
And then after he died and his brother Adelus became the king, Adelus named a bunch of roads and buildings after his brother. Didn't remember memory of him. And, and so it was this big loving thing. So the reason why they built this city was to be a missionary outpost for Greek culture. They wanted the Greek culture to spread east, and so they established a new city on the kind of the borders of what the Greek culture had kind of influenced up to that point, and they built the city as an outreach point where the missionaries could come and share the new writings from back in Greece and the new, you know, whatever Aristotle was talking about or whatever, and they would bring it to the city and they would kind of send it as a, as a missionary outpost. So it was designed, the whole city was designed as a place to spread information and beliefs. Now all this really matters as we get into what the evangelical church was really good at during the 1800s, which was, anyone know? Missionaries. That's what was amazing about the evangelical church. We'll get into that in a little while. Second thing you need to know, or third thing, I don't know what number we're on right now. The next thing you need to know is that there's tons of earthquakes in this city. This city, for some reason, has all these earthquakes. In fact, it was destroyed in AD 17. And so they would have tremors all the time, and the people never knew when the tremor was going to be the big one that would destroy all the buildings and they would all die. So anytime there was a tremor, they would go out of the city. They would walk out, or they would at least go into the roads, but generally they would go into the city. And so what I did is I went this week, and I looked up earthquakes in Turkey, and I found some amazing videos. And I encourage you, we don't have time because they're all about 10 minutes long, but if you go and watch what they do when an earthquake happens in Turkey is everyone runs out of the buildings and stands in the middle of the street, and then they all walk down the middle of the street out of the city. They still do the same thing today that this city did back in this day. You're going to see why that's important later as we get to the last sentence of the letter from Jesus. Well, the next part, he says, these things says he who is holy and he who is true. So we've seen in each letter that Jesus draws something from the description of him in chapter one of Revelation. He brings a certain part of his character out to the church, the part that, that they really need to know, the part that they really, that really applies to them. And in this one, he says, holiness, my holiness, and true. Holy means perfect. It's a word in the Bible that's only used for Yahweh or God. And so it's saying Jesus is God. Or, or, and also that his power is unlimited. So he can help. He can empower us. His goodness is perfect, so he will help. His power is perfect, so he can help, and his goodness is perfect, so he will help. This is what it means when it says he is, he who is holy. He wants us to understand, hey guys, I can and will help you. And it says he who is true. And this means he was genuine, genuine. Um, there are two ancient Greek words for true. One means true and not false. The other is true and not fake. True and not false is one way, and true and not fake in the other. And in this verse, it's true and not fake is the word used. So what that means is that Jesus is true in all that he is. He is the true God, and he is the true man. Last week in anchor groups, we had a call. It wasn't this previous one, but the one before, uh, I was doing anchor groups right here with our group. And then the other group was meeting over at Jarrett and BK's house. And you guys called me with a great question. And they said, well, Jesus, you know, could he have sinned? What was the question exactly? Do you remember? Could Jesus, not did he sin? We know he didn't sin, but could he have sinned? And I said, ah, oh, that's a great question. And it's amazing because this verse actually helps us out with that. He was true, genuine. My answer to them was the hypostatic union, which is a big word that the church developed to basically say that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. And so he had all of God's nature, but he also had all of man's nature. And it was this big word that, that we, they smooshed together all that. And they say it's really hard to understand, but basically, yes, he was fully God. <laughs> So he couldn't sin, but he was man, and he had a full man nature, and, and that's pretty confusing to understand. 
So it took about 400 years for the church to really figure this out, that Jesus is genuine. Because a lot of people were like, well, if he's just God, then how can he really relate to me as a man? If he's just God, how can he understand what I go through when I stub my toe and I want to curse? How can he understand that? Or the temptations that I go through with relationships or doubt or whatever, how could he really understand my weakness if he was just God? And if he was just man, then we have to ask the question, well, how could he pay the price for our sins? Because just a man isn't worth enough to pay the price for my sins. So for 400, it took 400 years for the church to come up with the term hypostatic union that described this, this thing. So you don't have to understand this to be saved or be part of the church, but it's really interesting. Then it took 1,844 years until someone came along to give a really good description. I'm going to read you that description, okay? This is from a guy named Kierkegaard. You guys didn't know you were going to learn all this today. Blow your mind. But in 1844, a guy from Denmark named Kierkegaard, he came up with a really great way to explain this. And he explained the dual nature of Christ as an ultimate paradox, he said. Do you guys know what a paradox is? Anyone know a good paradox they can share? What? Too expensive English shoes. Okay. I have no idea. But I trust you. That's a paradox. Okay. Oh, paradox. I actually love that. I, you deserve a high five. Cause that's like my kind of joke, man. Well done. I wasn't even on that track at all. <laughs> all right. That's right. Okay. So paradox. Jesus is the ultimate paradox, all right? Because God is understood as perfectly good, perfectly wise, and perfectly powerful, became fully human, which is perfectly weak and dependent. So how can those two things coexist together? So he, he said it like this. Let's see if I can read this the right way. He became perfectly human, which means he was burdened by sin, limited in goodness, knowledge, and understanding. But he was yet perfect in all those things at the same time. So the paradox can only be resolved, Kierkegaard believed, by a leap of faith. A leap of faith. Away from one's understanding toward, of reason, and reason towards belief in God. Thus, the paradox of the hypostatic union was crucial in the abiding faith in the, of, in the Christian God. So basically what he says is that you can't understand it. And that's the best description of the hypostatic union. You have to just believe that he was fully God, true at being God, and fully man, true at being man, all at the same time, and he embodies it all together. So here Jesus just states it like truth, like, like it's just no big deal. He's just like, yeah, I'm the truth. He's a, and we've heard him say this before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you don't have to understand it, but you do have to believe it. That's the cool part. It's easy enough to understand. It, it, he's saying basically, if I, as Jesus, was easy enough for you to understand, then I wouldn't really be big enough for you to worship. And he calls us and demands us to worship him. Well, now we get on to the next portion. Those are the two things he really wants us to understand about his character before he gets started with his message to this church. You're going to understand a little bit later. He says, the next part, he says, I am he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Again, when Jesus quotes something from the Old Testament, he intends for us to go back and to look at what he was quoting so that we can learn more context about what he was talking about. This is actually how rabbis taught their disciples in Jesus' day. They'd be walking around and they would just say something like random about a tree. And the disciples would be like, what are you talking about? But he would expect them to go and find where that tree is mentioned in the Torah, in the Bible, and 
investigate to see what he was talking about. He did this in, in, when he was on the cross. Jesus did the same thing. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you're just reading the narrative about the cross and you see that he said that, you can think, okay, well, I, I think I can understand why he's talking that, why he's saying that. I, man, but it kind of brings all kinds of questions into my mind. And we need to put those aside and find out what Jesus is talking about. What he was talking about there, he was saying, go back and read Psalm 22, which starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 22 goes on to describe Jesus hanging on the cross and the things he was going through and suffering on the cross for our sins. Written a thousand years before Jesus was even born. So this is how Jesus works. It's how he teaches. And right here, he just busts out this random, I'm he who holds the key of David and he who opens and shuts and shuts and no one opens. And you're like, what are you talking about, bro? This is a church. You have keys and David. David was like 4,500 years ago. What is going on here? Well, what this speaks of is back in Isaiah chapter 22. So we actually need to go back and look at Isaiah chapter 22. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 22. I didn't actually know this what I'm going to teach today before today. Usually I've heard Bible studies and I've, I've studied through the whole Bible and, and I don't get surprised by much anymore, but this part really blew my mind this week. So I'm excited to share it with you. We're going to start in verse 15. We're going to read through 25, uh, Isaiah chapter 22. It says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here? As he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So here we have this interesting story of God being not too happy with this guy named Shebna. Shebna. And Shebna, as best we can figure, is some sort of servant to the king of Israel. But he was very prideful. Shebna was prideful. And, and he thought he was this mighty man. And so God clearly says, you're not so mighty and I'm going to throw you away. I'm not going to let you serve me. I will not let you serve me if you're prideful. So verse 9, 19 says, So I will drive you out of your office, like a serving office, from your position he will pull you down. And it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And he will, and I, excuse me, I will clothe him with your robe. I will strengthen him with your belt. And I will commit your responsibility into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Verse 22 says, the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. So then God says, okay, Shebna, you're so prideful. I'm not going to let you serve me, but I'm going to raise up this guy named Eliakim, who we know virtually nothing about in the Bible. He's just this humble guy who God decides is going to be serve him instead of Shebna. And that's the extent of that story, basically. But this guy, Eliakim, really speaks of who? Jesus. That's the right answer in church, right? You ask any question, just answer Jesus. You'll probably be right. So God's going to replace this prideful servant with another servant named Eliakim who really speaks of Jesus. And he is actually going to have this authority to serve God. He, he's going to be 
have the right standing. And that's what the robe says. I'm going to take your robe, Shebna, and I'm going to give it to Eliakim. That means he's got the right standing. He's wearing the right clothes. He's clothed. He's going to have the right ability. That's the belt. He's strengthened. He says, I'm going to strengthen you with the belt of Shebna. I'm going to take that belt off and give it to you. It speaks of strength. I'm going to enable you. And then he says, you're going to get to serve. You're going to get some. You're going to get to serve. He, this servant, Eliakim, who speaks of Jesus, is going to be successful in serving God. He's going to be like a father where he really cares for the people and really loves them. That's what fathers are supposed to do, really care and really love their kids. And then it says he's going to have these keys, these keys, and they were the keys to the treasury of David. That's the riches of the kingdom. He had access to all these riches and all this gold so that he could serve the people because he was a father because he loved the people. So we're starting to see this thing happen where God's saying, your pride keeps you from being used by God, Shebna. And all the churches up until the evangelical church had kind of this struggle, maybe not with with Smyrna, but a lot of these others had this struggle with pride, thinking that God was really going to use them because of their position or their strength, their robe or their belt. And he says, no, the point here is I am going to let your ministry pass to someone who, will, who loves and who has the keys to the treasury. In other words, they go to the kingdom, the riches of the kingdom, to serve people and love people. They're not in ministry to get power and authority and recognition, but they're in ministry to bless people. That's the difference in these churches. That's the difference between Shebna and Eliakim. Shebna wanted to build his own sepulcher, which is his own grave. He was all concerned about his own legacy. He All he cared about was, how am I going to use the riches of David's kingdom for me and on my, so people remember me and think about me. And there came a change in the church when the church in the mid-1700s gave up thought of self. And they said, we just want God to be glorified and we just want to love people. And there's no coincidence that this change happened when people really began to spend time in the word of God, just reading it, having devotions, spending time with the Lord, having worship services. I mean, it's really amazing how this change happened in the church. So Jesus, like him, who is a picture of Jesus, it says he's enabled and equipped to love the people and to serve them by the resources of heaven. And that's what this key of David sentence is all about. He's saying there are resources in God's kingdom, just called the kingdom of David, God's kingdom. There are so many resources in heaven that are available to you if you want to use them to love people. But if you're in it, if you're in church to, for your own fame and for your own reputation and for your own deal, those, it's going to be shut to you. It's open for those who will love people. In fact, it's so open that no one will be able to stop you from doing ministry. If you really just want to love people, no one will be able to stop you, but you will have unlimited access to these riches from heaven. Well, continuing on in Isaiah, the the story gets a little bit more crazy. He says, I will fasten him, this Shebna guy, or this Eliakim, as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So they didn't have cupboards in their kitchens back in the day. Cupboards are a pretty new deal. They had pegs that they would hang their cups on and their pots and whatever they needed. They would hang them on pegs. And so God is saying that he, this guy Eliakim and Jesus, is going to be dependable because God is going to enable him and equip him by his grace. In other words, I can use this guy Jesus, I can use this guy Eliakim, and I can use you as a church if you will let me make you dependable by grace. Okay? 
Then in verse 24, it says, they will hang him on, uh, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house and the, off, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. So what he's saying here is that people are all different. There are really smart people and there are really dumb people that all come to church and they will be blessed by you if you will trust me and let me build you up by grace to love them. Verse 25, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall and the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. See, when Shebna was removed, all those who hung on him were also cut off. We have to make sure that we are hung on the right peg is what he's saying here in Isaiah. So what does all this mean? For us, as we flip back to the book of Revelation, and we see Jesus saying, I, ha- I am this guy, Eliakim. He's referencing Isaiah 22, and he's saying, I am the guy who has the key of David. What does this all mean? It means that Jesus is inviting you to get some. He's inviting you to be used by God, to get some. He's saying, hey, there is... A touchdown right here. You're on the one yard line. You can get it if you run the play that I'm calling. You can get it. And he divides it into a few sections here. So first he says, get some work or get some ministry or get some service. Get an opportunity. And he says right here, when Jesus says, he was the key of David and opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, he's saying, He wants us to remember that he is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. Remember the last thing Jesus said before he went up into heaven? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and so you go make disciples. Go teach them how to follow me. You go do that because I have all these. So in other words, he can move mountains for us. He can do miracles. He can open doors. He can give you opportunities. He can give you a ministry. But he will not do it if you are prideful is what we learn from going back to Isaiah. He can do miracles through you guys, but he won't if you're prideful like Shebna. That's how he connects these two things. If you want to do ministry in pride, you can try all you want to open the door of of success, but God is literally holding it shut if you're doing it in pride. If you want to serve God, however, in humility and faith, he's going to open doors that seem impossible for us. There are no shortcuts. There are no degrees that will guarantee success in the ministry. You can't go think that you can go to Westminster Seminary or any seminary and just come out and God is going to just plop give you a ministry. The, ministry, the, the, the only school that I really know that is almost guaranteed to get you a ministry is suffering. That's the school that God tends to put his greatest ministers through, is suffering. And you're thinking, wow, that's a different look on suffering than what I thought, because I thought that made me less usable. That's what the world tells me. Man, if you, you don't, don't expect too much of yourself, because you were, went through so much as a kid. You went through so much. Life has been so unfair to you. And so they, in this roundabout way, get us to think, oh, I I shouldn't expect God to really use me because I've suffered so much. I'm so broken. And in fact, Jesus is saying, that's the most usable person, is the one who has suffered, who now has humility and faith. So first he says, get some ministry. Second, he says, get some grace. This is when he says in verse 8, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus shows uh, shows us this right here. He says, I see what you do, and it's great, Church of Philadelphia, What you do is you humble yourself before me and you trust me. 
When they came to Jesus, this church of Philadelphia, what they did is they said, we have no strength. We are nothing. We don't have abilities. We can't speak eloquently. We can't, none of us have great jobs. We're just, we're so small. We're so weak. And Jesus said, that is amazing. That is humility. Because what they also did is they combined it with the second half of F and H, faith. They kept true to his word. They said, I am nothing, but you tell me everything that I need in your word. You give it all to me. And I believe you when you say, all you need is my word. Just read my word and it will change your life. Read my word and believe it and nothing will ever be the same. That's all you need. They believed that. They just simply believed it. He said, so I am using you. I am going to change the world through you and no one will be able to stop you. For you have this little strength, this humility, and you're not worried about your weakness. In fact, you're well aware of it. You embrace it and you've kept my word and not denied my name, which is faith. When you need something, you look to my word. That's what this church got. That's what this church did. And that's what made Jesus so powerful for them is they didn't look to, hey, let's get more political and join with the government and try to force everyone to become Christians. That's what they did in Pergamos. This church didn't do that. When you're tested, you trust my word, my name, which is my character revealed in my word. And that is their formula for success here in the Church of Philadelphia. Humility and faith. Get grace. Grace is God's power working in your life. And humility and faith are the way that we get that. That's how we please God. That's how we serve God is through this humility and faith thing. James 4.6 says God gives grace to the who? But he what? Resists, opposes, stands against the proud. It's a simple verse that shows that grace, God's power, his work in your life is given. It's free. You just ask for it. Your only requirement is humility, saying, I am weak and I need it. That's all that God requires of us. And yet, there's a second side to it. He says he resists the proud. So you can say, yeah, God, I need your grace. Give me your grace. Give it to me now. And God is saying, that's pride. Or I need your grace, God, so that my name can become great. So that I can get a big church and be well known in the city. And again, pride. God says, I give grace to the humble, but I resist the proud. That's how this church was successful, is their humility and their faith. Next, first we had get some ministry, then get some grace. Now, he says, get some sinners. Get some sinners. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. Jesus is saying, I know that people hate you, but I love them and I love you. So I'm going to use you to save them. And if you have a problem with God saving your enemies, read the book of Jonah. He also had a problem with God loving his enemies. And it's a great book. <laughs> they will learn, these sinners will learn who I am through you, and I'm going to let you be a father to them. He's not saying that they will come down and worship them before their feet. He's saying they will come and worship me before your feet. In other words, you will be like their dad, and you will be able to teach them and raise them up in the ways of the Lord. When you minister through humility and faith, God will use it to save people. God will use it to save people. So get some sinners. Next is get some escape. That's the way Dory would say it. We say, get some escape. <laughs> I just like that. Okay. It makes, get some escape sounds kind of weird. So get some escape. 
We'll do it like that. Verse 10 <laughs> says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The word from in that verse is very important. It's the Greek word ek. And it means from, <laughs> out of, separate from, apart from, away from. This church will not be in the tribulation. They are kept from it. Not through. No part of this word can mean through. They cannot be on the whole earth, it says. They can't be there. So the rapture happens before the tribulation and the church is taken out of the tribulation, from the tribulation, ek, the tribulation. Greek saves us again. The tribulation is for all those who dwell on the earth. You have to fight and scratch and claw to try to fit believers into the tribulation. You have to do linguistic gymnastics like, like unbelievable to try to say that Christians are going to go through the tribulation because it's just not there. The church is seen in heaven in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. Right now, we're in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, which is the time of the church, when the church is here on the earth. Then in chapters 4 and 5, the church is up in heaven. And we see them all up in heaven, praising God, blah, just singing songs. It's all great and happy. And then it looks back down to earth in chapter 6. And what starts? The tribulation. And guess what? Who's not there? The church. Through the entire time, the church is never mentioned from chapter 6 through chapter 19. The church is never seen again. Until it goes back up to heaven again, and you see them again coming back with Jesus at the second coming. So the rapture, tribulation, then the second coming. It's pretty neat. We'll have to do a full study on that sometime, but we don't have time today. Oh, Lord, we are running out of time. Okay, um, so we're supposed to rejoice because we won't suffer from our God. We will be saved by him. But some people say, well, you're going to have to persevere through the tribulation. Because he says the word persevere here. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial. However, the word persevere here is in the past tense in the Greek. Showing that is something that Christians have already been doing before the hour of trial, which has not yet come upon the whole world. So the promise is a reward for past perseverance and not the equipping for perseverance in the future. As far as the Philadelphia church is concerned, the rapture of the church was presented to them as an eminent hope. All right, so then he says in verse 11, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one would take your crown. Quickly could also mean rapidly. Because a lot of people say, okay, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. It's been 2,000 years. This is ridiculous. This is not quick in anyone's economy. But what it means is rapidly. So when he comes, it's going to be fast. And when the signs of his coming start approaching, it's going to be quick. How it, man, things are changing so fast. What do we say all the time about the technology in our world? Man, things are changing Quickly. Well, when was the computer invented? Do you know, Ryan? You're my computer guy. 40 years ago. So everything, I have like four computers within a foot of me right now. <laughs> the, the world is changing very quickly right now. Well, this church is going to be towards the end of the church age, this Philadelphia church. And Jesus, again, wants us to focus on his rapid coming, not to wait for some other prophecy to happen. Nothing else needs to happen. Jesus said for, wants us to hold fast to him. And he says, you will be rewarded if you hold on to Jesus. He will make it worth it for you. Now, the last thing we say here is get something that lasts. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Pillars 
stand the test of time. Pillars even stand in earthquakes. I have pictures of pillars in Philadelphia. Not Pennsylvania, the real Philadelphia. There's that. Now check those out. Those are real pillars in Philadelphia. They are big, massive things, and the whole rest of the building has fallen down except for these pillars because pillars are strong and pillars are secured to the foundation that is not shaken during an earthquake. They don't break in an earthquake. And in God's kingdom, we are strong and unmovable when we live in humility and faith. That's what connects us to the foundation of Jesus Christ. Humility and faith. And we don't have to go out anymore when earthquakes hit our lives. When our lives start shaking and the tremblers start coming and the doctor says, it's terminal, it's cancer. When the relationships start breaking and the earthquakes start shaking our life, when you have humility and faith, you will not fall. It is a guarantee. And he says, he who overcomes will be a pillar in my kingdom. And what's cool is that many times the names of faithful servants or priests were engraved onto the pillars of the churches. So what they did, their faithfulness was honored for generations to come. And what God did through them, God could be glorified through. There are some great pillars in the evangelical church of the past couple hundred years. George Mueller is a pillar that will never fall. The things he did for the orphans in England are unbelievable. He took care of over 10,000 orphans, never once asking anyone for money. He only asked God. And over 50 years of running these orphanages, he provided for their education from the time their education and food and clothing and everything from the time they were born to the time they graduated high school and found them jobs for 10,000 kids all on faith and humility and he recorded it all for you to read just to show you that God answers prayers that you can be a pillar too he's a pillar Hudson Taylor said no one's going to China with the gospel, so I'm going to go to China with the gospel. He goes to China, he marries a Chinese woman, and he leads like half the country to Christ. I don't know, like thousands of people. A few years later, the government changes in China, they kill them all. But he's a pillar in God's kingdom. William Carey, same thing in India. All these happened through this great evangelical church do you notice that it's caring for others, loving for others, brotherly love? That's what made this church great. John and Charles Wesley started in England, George Whitfield. They kind of started these crazy revivals where they just would teach and then they would do open air preaching. They would just go in the field and teach anyone because it was it the, the church had grown really culturally like stuffy and you had to go into church building and to even talk about god you had to like wear fancy clothes and and have degrees and so all the common people like minors and stuff they couldn't just go to church or have a good relationship with god and these guys took the gospel out to them and george whitfield traveled from the time he was 21 preaching the gospel until he was in his i don't know he died in his 60s i think and and he led hundreds of thousands of people to the lord in england and hundreds of thousands of people to the Lord in America. And it's called the Great Awakening in America. He basically started it all by himself. He just took, he just went, and all he did was go out into the streets and just start preaching. And he would stand on a box. And they said that he could preach with no microphones to 60,000 people. He had this big, booming voice. I don't know. But he was, and, and he was, his sermons are just so simple. But he was a pillar in God's kingdom, used to change hundreds of thousands of people's lives. I, I could talk about Adoram Judson and Charles Finney and Dwight Moody in Chicago, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. You just go on and on and on. And even through to today, I think we're at the tail end of this because today we're getting into next week's church, which we'll really investigate. And I think we're going to be horrified 
when we see how the church of the lukewarm church, Laodicea, that we're going to study next, next week, is really infecting even us. And we have to fight to hold on to humility and faith so that we can still be part of this Philadelphia church. Men who define this church of brotherly love, men who trusted God in humility, that's what these pillars are. Women too. I just didn't name any because I didn't think about it. Sorry. No offense, Mother's Day. Jeez. These guys and girls are the servants like Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, raised up by God, given authority by God, strengthened by God to go out and reach the world with the preaching the good news and loving people. Their love is amazing. And all the guys I mentioned, the one thing that people were just blown away with is how much they loved them. So crazy. They're wearing that robe. They have that belt that Eliakim was wearing. They serve God with no thought of themselves. They don't worry about their own legacy. They were dependable and no one could stop them. All the things we learned in Isaiah chapter 22 about Eliakim and Jesus and that Jesus says, the church of Philadelphia, you figured it out. It's what it's all about. They became fathers to the men of our world, loving them and caring for them, the low and the great. God opened up ministry for them that could not be stopped. God built churches and God saved people and God was glorified through the great evangelical church. So are we going to be part of this church? Are we going to get some? Then we need to pursue humility and faith like when you're drowning at the bottom of a pool and you're trying to get to the top for oxygen. That's how much we need to pursue humility and faith. Humility grows when we pray. Faith grows when we read the Bible. Because Jesus is coming back soon, guys. I'm going to read three verses out of Revelation 22, verse 7, 12, and 20. The end of the book of the Bible. The last chapter of the last book, this is what he says. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And verse 20, he who testifies these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And that's how the Bible ends. I am coming quickly. Jesus is saying, you need to get some. There's one second left on the clock. There's a touchdown right in front of you. If you follow my game plan, humility and faith, you will score. And we will win the Super Bowl. And Von Miller will be the MVP. No, you will be the MVP. Just do what I say, Jesus says. Jesus, we thank you so much for your love, for giving us your word. Lord, I thank you so much for this letter to the church in Philadelphia and the encouragement that it gives us to, to fall before you in humility and in faith and to trust you, Lord. And I pray that you would Teach us, Lord, to love you more, to trust you more, and help us to keep our eyes on you. In your name we pray.